Fusroda. I, I texted my friend Fusroda, and he said that he read the message and flew backwards across the room. <laughs> Episode 37 of Random Encounter, the RPG Fan Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Steinman, Pale Robbie on the boards. Joining me today, we have fellow Diablo 3 adventurer. Uh, Stephen Myring, Talos on the boards. We have the man who has been drinking and playing Skyrim probably way too much. There's one that I've been doing more of than the other, and it's it's Skyrim. But this is this is Zach, uh, super flat on the boards. And of course, the Zelda fanboy in us all. How am I a fanboy? I'm Derek Heemsbergen, Embryon on the boards. I thought you loved Zelda. I do like Zelda a lot. I'm not like a super fan. But uh, it's pretty yeah. awesome. For, first sign you have a problem is you have to admit that you have a problem. Okay, I like it a lot. Okay, okay. So we're here to uh, talk about games as usual. We're going to start off with a little bit of further Skyrim discussion. We're not going to bore you guys with that too much. We spent a whole podcast talking about that. And we don't like to talk about the same game every podcast on this show. Of course we don't. No, no, no never. definitely don't do that. Uh, moving on into The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword. Kind of a divisive uh, entry in the series, but you know, seeing some forward movements by the Nintendo. <laughs> Rob, that's because it's the first one since Link to the Past that's been good. Ooh, Steven with the gloves. Oh, snap. Steven takes the gloves off. Uh, And then we're going to end with my adventures and Steven's adventures through Tristram because we're both in the beta. (laughs) Not even. No, I'm not going to do it. Uh, Yeah, uh, Diablo 3, my game of 2011 and 2012. Okay. Uh, So, Zach, you've been playing a lot of Skyrim. I have. I've played many hours in the past week, which is more than I play for most games. You and and I disagree on Skyrim in in some areas, but I want you to be positive about Skyrim. I am so positive about Skyrim. Um, You're playing it a lot. I I look on Steam, and, like, Zach is just playing Skyrim. I'm like, isn't he in school? No, no, like literally 20 hours this past week. I've stayed up to four every morning, um, and and one of those nights I was finishing my application to the JET program, and the <laughs> other nights I was playing Skyrim. And that's the um, way it was for me with Oblivion. Uh, when I got Oblivion one summer, and I it became a nine to five job because I wasn't working, <laughs> so I just played Oblivion all the time. Um, yeah, but but so yeah, so Skyrim Skyrim's pretty great. That's that's my opinion on it. Um, I I've. I'm not sure how to quantify what's good about it um, because it's it's the there's something almost intangible about what makes me want to stay up uh, and and play it from I think I got back to campus on on Sunday night, uh, which is where my PC is. And I was like, all right, I'll play Skyrim for an hour. Um, And and I I started at 11 p.m. Um, and I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to have to wake up the next morning and, you know, like get, you know, get some good work in, you know, like work on my application, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the next thing I know, it's five in the morning. Um, you can't and play Skyrim in short bursts. I mean, I think that that is somehow I, the, the, the way that the world is, is created, I think has, it's able to get its hooks in you and, 
you're I think it's mostly how the quest ties are handled um just because you're you're able to walk around and just explore and I know that they you, that you guys kind of talked about this in the last one but like you'll just run into a quest just randomly and like someone will have a conversation in the world and you'll overhear it and be able to you know just figure out what's going on and like help out one group or another um and yeah, I just I, I really really like this game. Well, what's what's interesting? Uh, go ahead, Stephen. Uh, I was going to point out uh, what I love about it. I mean, it, there are many things, but um, right around the time you're doing the second story quest where you're climbing a mountain and you get halfway up and there's like ice flying everywhere and snow everywhere and you can hear the wind and the music is faintly playing and you're occasionally doing a little fighting and you're looking out over the edge and you can see like all the way to like other cities and you're like, yep. This is pretty awesome. I, I think, it's like it, it lets you act out a – I mean I guess you, you act out a fantasy I guess is a way to put it because that's that's how I feel when I'm playing it. I'm not, I'm not thinking about the individual pieces of the game when I'm playing it because everything at least works well enough. So while I'm playing it, I'm not thinking about, oh, this or that. I'm thinking of, oh, I want to get there. I have these tools to do it. I think that's when I enjoy Skyrim the most too is when I feel like I'm on an adventure, when I feel like I'm on a quest, when I'm completing an objective. That's when Skyrim is at its absolute best. That's when I feel deeply immersed in the world. There are some awesome quests in this game. I mean, uh, we talked about, you know, a murder mystery quest. There's quests where, you know, you have to pickpocket certain people oh, yeah. or fall follow them around town. I mean, they're just really, really cool elements of this game. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a little sour on the game right now and I'll explain why in a minute, but like, I have to keep reminding myself that what I love about this game is the sense of place and the, the feeling of belonging, like even limiting the number of load screens in the game, since you don't automatically load when you go into a town, like some towns are, there isn't a wall surrounding them. You just walk into town and start interacting with people. The game really does a brilliant job of making you feel like you know you captured your best friend who is a dungeon master. You chained him up in your bedroom, and he's just giving you quests and giving Rob, you adventures. What are you doing in your spare time? Uh, you don't want to know. It's some really kinky stuff. Well, uh, don't you think though? Like again, um, do you think maybe expectation may have had to do with that too? Like you know. Again, I, I'm I, I'm loath to bring it up because I don't want us to discuss it too much. But given the, the proximity to Dark Souls and how very different they are, but how you know, even if we say we're not influenced by discussion, so many people compare the two. Do you feel like maybe in a way, having played a game that it has been painted to be similar, it kind of it may have colored your expectations? No, no. What it was, what's really soured me on on. Um... Skyrim, and we were talking before, uh, my biggest problem with the game is that the core issues that I had with Oblivion, namely the combat being uh, not very well fleshed out and feeling kind of silly and not responsive, and the level scaling, which prevented me from ever feeling strong and forced me to fight enemies that were always uh, kind of obnoxious – those were my core problems with Oblivion. They're better in Skyrim. I mean, overall, the combat's better, and the level scaling is better, but it's still not to the point where I want it. The combat still feels very floaty. The uh, level scaling... I, I hit level 30, and it's like the not fun button on the game suddenly got switched on, and my stealthy character is now dealing with like people that know fourth-level magic spells, and they're just roasting me. And that's when I, I really get sour on the game, and I have to keep reminding myself what I love about this game 
is the sense of place, not necessarily the way the mechanics of the title work. Yeah, I won't. I won't disagree that the combat is is less than stellar. Um, it's you know it, it is floaty as you said, and and there are times when I, I kind of wish that you know like people weren't such like damage sponges because there are a lot of enemies in the game that you just kind of have to keep attacking um, in, until they fall over. But like but yeah, the, uh, like the dragon priests, they can take quite a few hits. I haven't, I haven't run into any of those yet. Yeah, I think but, they're in the main quest, and I haven't got to them okay. yet either. Um, so those are, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure they are, but, like, the Frost Trolls are oh. less than fun to fight. And then I there was a, I was doing a quest where I had to, like, investigate this, you know, like, this murder um, and, like, what's going on, you know, like, in this town. And right. then someone, like, comes up and, like, is like, I don't like you asking questions about this. Let's brawl. And so I had to punch a guy out and it, it took me about five minutes to, to beat this guy up um without any like real threat of dying so yeah. right. uh, there, there are times that that's bad but then there's there's another quest and i don't want to like talk too much about it but it's in the in, it's one of the the deidre quests that you can get um and it's just like really creepy kind of like haunted house sort of thing yeah i know um, the one you're talking which about. Yeah. which is is just like it was so different because like before that i had just been you know like you know like just kind of you know, walking around town, like sneaking through these these dwarven ruins, which are also really cool, um, and and not doing anything of of particular interest. But then you run into this quest just just offhand. This guy's like, "Hey, you want to help me? Like, you know, like I could use some backup. I'm about to like cleanse this house." Um, and and you go in the house, and then all of a sudden everything's haunted. And I don't know. It's it's the the little things like that that will sneak up on right. you and Those just surprise are... you and and keep you playing the game, keep you invested. And you know things are constantly changing. Um, without, and yeah, with, without talking too much about Skyrim, I, I think we we spent a whole podcast talking about it before, and I, I kind of want to have us move on just because it is such a big game. We can mm. talk about it for like four episodes if we wanted to. What I find, what I find, oh, yeah. what I find most interesting about Skyrim, is that uh, you know I'm a teacher. People, regular listeners on the show, know that I'm a teacher, and uh, my students are all playing Skyrim. And you know the two big games that they're playing are Skyrim and Call of Duty right now. And these two games couldn't be further apart in the opinions out of the kids. Because I'll talk to them and I'll be like, so what do you guys like about Skyrim? And they're like, oh, we love the big open world, and we love the quests, and we love the storytelling. And then I'm like, well, what do you guys think about the combat? Every single one of them says that the combat in the game is awful. And what you're seeing is you're you're seeing kids that are playing games. You know, we're talking about you know 15, 16 year old kids. That, so they're like similar to Zach's age. Uh, they, they're playing. <laughs> they're, they're playing a game for story and they're playing a game for role playing they're not playing skyrim because of the combat and i think that that shows that that there is an audience for games you know like heavy rain or or games that are based around narrative more than people think people have a tendency to think that all anyone cares about are shooters you know call of duty big action set pieces no interaction but the sales of skyrim and seeing that this game is a huge part of pop culture right now it shows that people are interested in these kind of games and you know what that's a out of the park shot for bethesda awesome job guys you know get, showing us that narrative and story matter in a game and you can make very interesting quests I think it's just that Skyrim is at its best when I'm immersed. It's not as at its best when I'm mechanically playing it, if that makes sense. Like when I sneak into a house to steal some loot, 
that's when the game works really well. But when I have to pick up the axe to take it into another room because then I can steal it and the person who is watching me move the axe, they don't get alerted until I move it into out of their vantage point. That's the weirdness. There's of a lot of jank. There's a lot of jank in Skyrim. There's a, there's a fair amount of jank that no one really seemed to mention, and I think that that's proof of it's a game that for many people is greater than the sum of its parts. And, and, and that's such a cliche this thing to say when it comes to reviews, but I think with Skyrim – People are really willing to look past a lot of bizarre stuff like dragons flying backwards. Uh, people are willing to look past it, and you know. Well, I mean, I, that's even what I said just a minute ago too. Is that you know when you get into the game, you're playing there. I'm not thinking about oh man, mechanically my sword doesn't function that well. I don't use swords; swords are lame. But uh, you know, <laughs> or you know, mechanically this is weird, or oh, this menu option is weird, or something like that. I I mean, it doesn't even come to a thought of me. So I really feel like it is a game that. It, the focus is not on each individual component of the game itself. It's the yeah, overall you're, you're right, you're right. impression. So, Skyrim, you know, I'm sorry if we sounded way too negative on the last podcast. You know, I, I'm very much holding back right now because, like I said, I, I really – there are elements of this game that have really driven me crazy, and I really don't want to play anymore. I, I'm like 35 hours in, and I'm – I've had my fill. I've just been too frustrated with it. But, you know, the first 20 hours with this game when it was just telling me a story and I wasn't fighting so much with the game mechanically, I really loved those hours. Like, they were so much fun. I spent three days just playing this game and not doing anything else. And those were a lot of fun. And I really hope that I can get back into that with Skyrim and I can start to look past some of the jank and the way the game plays because there is there's an awesome game here. It really is. And I, again, to our listeners, I apologize if we were too negative on the last podcast because you know what? If you want a good adventure game and you want to play out a role and you want to feel like you're part of a world, there really isn't any other game like Skyrim that makes you feel as much of a world. So It's so good. <laughs> I'm gonna try. I, I, I'm, I'm gonna, gonna keep playing. That's the best part is that I'm just gonna keep playing more and more and more. I might have to re-roll a character just because my my character is not really fitting in with the way Skyrim works right now. But I might uh I might replay it. Yes, I know Stephen is yelling at me through Skype to talk. No, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> All right. So uh, the other big release of November was uh, the Legend of Zelda: Skyward Sword. Um, Woo! Steven, you are very up on this game. Well, that's because I feel like everybody has good reason to be happy this month because a ton of – well, I was about to say a bad word. A lot of really great games came out this month that really hit a variety of different types of gameplay, and that's just awesome. And for me, I really – as you know, I kind of outed my – I've outed myself before. I hated Ocarina of Time. I just – I don't think it's that fun of a game. I'm bored every time I play it. Can, can I and, ask if you played it when it came out? Uh, not right when it came out, no. Yeah, see, I had the same problem where I played Ocarina years later, and I think I think it was one of those games you kind of had to be there. I was eight when it oh, came out. A lot of people <laughs> still love it. Like, people are playing it now on 3DS for the first time and saying it's awesome. And, you know, I guess I can understand it's a solidly built game. I just – it never got its hooks in me because everything just – I don't know. I've always been a bigger fan of the 2D Zeldas, like particularly like the Game Boy Color ones, especially the ones Capcom made. But Skyward Sword is just – it's like somebody said, how can we make a game that is beautiful and nothing but pure, absolute fun? And that's pretty, pretty much, much what they did. Like, the game has no cruft. Like, 
one of the reasons I didn't like Twilight Princess, one of the many, but was the the sequences where you had to run around as the wolf and collect the little orbs. It just yeah. it felt like it felt like just gameplay padding. Like, why did I have to do that? Why couldn't I just find a button and press it and disable Twilight in that area? You know, whatever. That that's a personal thing. But everything in Skyward Sword is just oriented towards being fun. It's not like, oh, I have to grind through the, the overworld now to find the dungeon. Now getting to the dungeon is fun. And, you know, basic exploration, it's all the fun parts of sailing, only now the flight takes not even a, mot- a, a fraction of the time. But, well, I, I want to get Derek to jump in here because yeah. during the Skyrim discussion, I forgot Derek was on the podcast. I, I'm guessing Derek has <laughs> I'm guessing you haven't been playing Skyrim. I forgot I was <laughs> on the podcast too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so now, yeah. are you just as high on this game as Steven is? Like what, what's been your – give everyone a little bit of background on Zelda for you. Like do you like the 3D Zeldas? Because like, I think that's where people are going to – people are going to realize which opinions they're going to G up with before they even play the game. I do. I do like the 3D Zeldas. They're not my favorites. Um I would still say my favorite is Link to the Past, and I'm not trying to be, like, pretentious. Like, oh, you probably haven't heard of it. It's pretty underground. I like Link to the yeah, Past. Yeah, it's such an underground game because everyone on the Super Nintendo had it. Yeah, but the, Link to the Past is still my favorite. But I, I like Ocarina of Time a lot. It's not my favorite, and I'm actually not too keen on Majora's Mask, although I need to give that another chance. Um, it's been too long since I played it. Um, I liked Wind Waker a lot, even though the sailing was repetitive. Twilight Princess I liked a lot, and Skyward Sword... I have to say it's like it's up there, um, top five Zeldas, maybe top three. Uh, everything about it is just fun. Like I can't remember. There's only one part in that entire game that I don't like, and it's a recurring boss fight that really, really <laughs> irritated me. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Because there's just like I feel like I was doing it wrong the entire time. But no, no, Stephen. The, the the big guy, the imprisoned. Don't don't give it away. Don't give it away. Oh yeah. Well, what's what's interesting? Now, yeah. Go ahead, Stephen. Uh, Derek, which you said top three. Which is your favorite Zelda? Link to the Past. Oh, I love you. Yeah, I love you too. <laughs> I, I think what's interesting is uh, listening to other podcasts and other people talk about the game. I think people are, are saying that Skyward Sword doesn't put its best foot forward. It starts off a little slow, and the first dungeon is apparently a little confusing, and the first boss is apparently confusing. I haven't played the game, so I have no, no clue. it's not, unless you're an idiot. The first, I actually have, I have like the for, opposite the opposite opinion about that. I feel like the start of this was so gripping good. because, yeah, it's a little slow gameplay wise. Like you're just you're being introduced to the mechanics kind of slowly. But I would say that the whole intro sequence doesn't take more than like an hour to an hour and a half. I, and, I have to. Sorry, go ahead. And, and you're actually being introduced to the characters, and you care about them way more than you care about them in any other Zelda game, in my experience. I definitely agree. Like that's what hooked me is you know. I knew within an hour of playing Ocarina on 3DS that I still didn't care for that game. Whereas from Skyward Sword, I was like, everything here feels fresh. I go, his relationship with Zelda is interesting for once. And, you know, all the people you meet, like you meet like the greaser gang, basically. That's that's all I can describe them as. And it just felt cool that everyone in the world thinks Link is a complete tool. <laughs> and I don't know. I thought that I got, I got a kick out of that. And it, again, the game is beautiful. But... I thought, you know, it did put its best foot forward. And the first boss fight is actually the moment. I think it's interesting that people think the first boss fight isn't awesome because the, I got to that fight. And that was when I first said, wow, this game is awesome. Because you have to fight that boss in a way that you have never had to fight a single boss in any Zelda ever. 
Well, what's interesting is we're starting the discussion for game of the year right now, and um, I was just being funny, and I, you know, I like to rant on the boards on our editors' boards, and I said, you know, one of my biggest disappointments of the year was um, Arkham City, which uh, I'm getting to a point, guys. Arkham City is very similar to a Zelda game in a lot of ways, and you know, it has a big overworld, and you're going into dungeons technically, and you know, getting new items and stuff. But I think where a lot of people forget that Zelda is still kind of the king of this area is because Zelda games are very long. Usually what ends up happening is you get a new item in a dungeon, and then they spend that dungeon teaching you how to use that item, and then you're going to use that item in other dungeons. Arkham City, since it's only like a 15 to 20-hour game, you don't get that progression of learning how to do things. And so you're constantly sitting there going, wait a minute, how do I get through this area? Meanwhile, in all the 3D Zeldas that I've played, I never had that feeling because I just knew instinctively, okay, I see something like that. This is how I need to start thinking. And I think to me, Arkham City is the perfect example of a Zelda game that lacks that cohesion and that ability to give the player knowledge. And I think that what what it was hard for people with Skyward Sword, what I was reading was people were saying that they had never – like you were saying, Stephen, they got to the first boss and they had never thought like that before. They were still thinking like old school 3D Zelda. Like, that's I a have, good thing though. Yeah, that's that's why it's so fresh because I – don't, I don't, do you feel like it would be a spoiler to discuss it? I don't really think so. I mean it's just – It's the first boss, not really. You bas- basically, you're fighting another guy and at first he's just walking at you and he has a glowing hand. And you have to use the motion controls to fight him. If you swing your sword towards his hand, he grabs the blade and throws it across the room. So you have to actually look at where he's waving his hand around and attack. And then after you hit him a few times, he pulls out a sword and you have to have a sword fight with him. And you have to actually attack, you know, you have to parry and you have to, you know, attack where he's not, has a, where he doesn't have a sword. And it makes perfect sense from a logical standpoint. It's just nothing like anything in a Zelda yeah, I've I've heard people complaining about that, like, oh, I don't want to have to actually like move my body to get anything done, and I don't understand because you're hardly, I mean, you know, you're moving your arm, but it just feels completely natural. I don't know how that could be a, a negative at all. Yeah. I think it's amazing and incredibly, it draws you in. It's really immersive. Nintendo also has a huge problem on their hands where they want to keep the fans happy, but you can tell that the developers over at Nintendo are starting to say, well, we want to innovate, we want to do different things, we want to try new things, and the problem is that then they're going to please people like Steven and Derek, but then they're going to piss off the fanboys that literally just want a remake of Ocarina of Time. As much as I love Twilight Princess, I know that that game is essentially a remake of Ocarina of Time. I love that game, but it wasn't exactly doing anything new. There were some new items that were a lot of fun, but it was a retreaded formula. Skyward Sword is creating a little bit of a polarization right now because they tried new things. And you know what? For Nintendo to try new things, this is like look outside and make sure hell hasn't frozen over. I look oh. at it like I look at it like this. Final Fantasy VII came out, oh, it's the best thing since sliced bread. Final Fantasy VIII came out, changed things up substantially, but was still a turn-based RPG. Everyone hated it. Well, I I hate Final Fantasy VIII, so what's your point? The point is that people just want another Ocarina. You're right, people do well, just... It, I, for people who want ahead. a remake of Ocarina of Time, guess what? There's a remake of Ocarina of Time. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the next game that we're going to talk about, I'm not leaving Skyward Sword, but the next game we're going to talk about, I think that there's been so much of a gulf between releases that people are going to be more accepting of change, but even that we're seeing a giant backlash against it. And so I think with with Skyward Sword, the last Zelda game came out in, what was it, 2006? Yeah, 2006. Yeah, the last 
console. Try that yeah, console. and so we've seen you know five years between Zelda games, and I think people are starting to get a little tired of the formula. You know, most of the reviews are saying you know we're, we're starting to see the gray hair of Zelda. We're starting to see the same thing over and over again. But at least they're trying some new things. You know, just adding the motion control or adding the the sky overworld. They're trying. I think the issue is that people. When people first played Ocarina of Time, and again, I'm going to bring back my Final Fantasy VII analogy, that was the first time that the series had been 3D, the first time it had Z-targeting. For for all intents and purposes, the first time that targeting things in a 3D space actually worked. And it was done so well that now when the game doesn't completely blow your mind and reinvent everything, people are disappointed. But it's the thing is, you know... The jump from the Super Nintendo to the 64 was the 3D jump. We don't have that anymore. We just have, you know, I mean, now we have the motion controls. Right. And, you know, when Ocarina came out, you know, I, you know, I feel like there were a good number of people that said, oh, I prefer the, the 2D style. And now people are just saying, you know, we've moved on to this new format with the motion controls. People are just saying, oh, I prefer whacking the button. Yeah. Right. Well, the new dim- it's like you said, the, the new dimension was 2D to 3D and now it's 3D to motion and all of the motion controls are well implemented and none of them feel like tertiary because the beetle, you know, like you're controlling it with your wrist, it feels natural. The sword play, it makes sense to strike from different angles. You can bowl with bombs, which is amazing. Bowling with bombs is the best thing in the amazing. game. Yeah, uh, it, it all makes sense. None of it feels like like stupid stuff that you have to do for no reason and that's why i'm i'm kind of not understanding the complaints about the motion controls i'm really not is it like the other 3d zeldas where you know you start off you get your slingshot or you get your boomerang and then you and then the new equipment starts coming later or do you immediately start getting new stuff you get the slingshot and then you immediately get the beetle oh cool and that's the one that you kind of like fly around the environment you can pick stuff up and Interact yeah. with things, right? And you get the bug catching net, which isn't new, but you can control it with the motion control. So I run around like a jackass just waving my bug bug net at people. <laughs> why am I not surprised? Oh, well, you know, why not? <laughs> but so you guys are up on it. I mean, it, definitely a good move for the Zelda franchise, and we want to see more of this. Absolutely. Yep. I, I would like to see it carried forward. I don't think it's necessary that they have to keep everything, but... Having played the sword combat in this and found it to be the only combat in Zelda ever that's actually been a draw to the series, yeah. And again, bowling with bombs. How, we haven't talked about the story that much. Uh, it's it, an origin story. It, it, is this the first uh, – everyone's theorizing that this is the first Zelda game. Like and we know Nintendo has some you know, freaking map of the Zelda universe – Somewhere deep in Nintendo headquarters, where everything's all planned out. But but like, let's not talk about that because that's crazy. Yeah, that that stuff's crazy with split timelines and stuff like that. But you know, there was a. This part... is supposed to be the establishment of religion. And see what I'm really. Did you want... beat it yet, Stephen? No, not yet. Is there something like at the end? Let me guess. It starts raining well... or something <laughs> like that. No, I was hoping for that at the end of Twilight Princess. I was really hoping for that. No. Again, him comes out and he's all like, wah, 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 wah. And then right. he shoots, you know. Don't don't give away the again. ending, Derek. Yeah, I, I beat it yesterday, and I will say that the story doesn't blow your mind, but it definitely it introduces some elements that, that people are going to be speculating about and saying, oh, so that's why this is like this. But it's not it's not the best story ever. It's it's refreshing for Zelda, but you're not going to play the game for the story. You're going to play it because it's fun. I, I still think my favorite Zelda moment 
you know, I, I'm a Link to the Past fan as well. I mean, that's my favorite Zelda. I want to go back and play Zelda 2, though, because there seems to be a lot of, you know, people are starting to say that Zelda 2 is an underrated title. I just remember trying to play that game, and it, like, broke my mind. But I'm going to try to do it again. I've been um, playing that on 3DS, actually. Uh, the Zelda 2? Yeah, and I had never played it, never paid any attention to what people thought about it. I just heard that it was really different, and it is. But it's pretty fun. I want to try it again. I think what's funny is um, – oh, god. You completely uh, – oh, yeah. My favorite uh, Zelda moment was Wind Waker. The ending fight in Wind Waker was so cool and it, such a change for the series. That that was awesome. But I was really hoping that like at the end of Twilight Princess, it would start raining or it would start to imply you know another link in the series because I, I am one of those people that I like to think about the timeline. I like to think about how all the games fit together. I think Nintendo is kidding themselves when they say that they have a plan for the whole thing. I don't think they do. I really don't, but it, it's cool to speculate on. I think it's a fun thing to speculate, but what's our favorite uh, Zelda-like game? Because Zelda games are very much – Okami. Okami. I, Okami's too long. Like That's Okami's Okami, problem. What said. No, Okami is just – Okami just needs, needed to end at like hour 20, and instead it went to like I hour loved all, I loved all 35 hours of Okami. Oh, it, was, I have, it was so good. I played the first part of the game on PS2, really liked it, and I just haven't gotten back to it. I really like Darksiders. That was a kick-ass game. Dark I have Siders that on really Steam. Too. I have you that should, on you Steam. You play that, Rob. Yeah. Make uh, sure you have a controller for it, though, but it's, oh, yeah. it's really good. Yeah. yeah. And then, um, well, I mean, it's not a Zelda-like game, but the Dark Cloud games were originally touted as the Zelda killer on Sony, but they're not. But those games are also quite awesome if we're talking Dark action RPGs. amazing. Dark Cloud 2. Dark Cloud 2 is yeah. mad awesome. That's the game that I, I saw it one time, and it was like 10 bucks, and I meant to pick it up, and I didn't. That game is worth 60 bucks. There is a crap load of content in that game. <sighs> and I hate the word content, but there is. I hate the word content. Didn't Weren't you using that argument when it came to Skyrim? Yeah, I, I can't stand the word content. I think it's half the reason why the gaming industry isn't as awesome as it used to be because it's all talk about content. Well, we have well, great amounts of quality content. Throw, I don't have content, bro. downloadable before it, you know, it's uh, it makes, it makes a lovely three, three letter word. Or <laughs> Easy. Um, what, what annoys me is uh, to not, not to go back too far to Skyrim, but we're talking about the games industry and journalism real quick. How can people who were reviewing, like say the PS3 version of Skyrim, how can they give that game, the scores that it got with the fact that the game breaks once you hit like the 20 hour mark, like the game was completely broken. Like it, it, the frame rate would literally go to like three frames a second because of a memory leak and nobody even mentions it in a review of the PS3 version. Steven and I are talking about this and there's so much exaggeration right now in in journalism, game journalism. I I think that's a big problem because I think Game Informer is a good magazine. I read it. But I also think that that criticism that comes up a lot that goes, oh, we know GameSpot pay, or uh, GameStop pays the bills, so obviously they're very optimistic. And you know, I'm optimistic too. And I realize that even as a like as a, a journalist, I tend to be very, very open to new ideas, even if I think they don't sound great. I'll give it a chance. And I think that's getting more and more, you know, widespread in journalism is that. There's no middle ground for a game now. There's this game is terrible. It sucks. Never play it. Or this game is the best thing ever. Yep. There's no more like, yeah, this is a pretty good game. It has flaws, but it's pretty good. 
That's probably because we haven't had Chrono Cross in a while, so we can't have a perfect game. But, oh, no, you're you're damn right, right there. Um, I, you're right, and it, you but s- in all seriousness, that that's the truth. Is right now, it's everything is so hyperbolized. Like every a seven game that is comes the worst out, game ever made. Yeah, like every game that comes out now, if it doesn't get a ten, everyone's like, "Oh, that game was a disappointment." Yeah, and I'll admit that I, I'm guilty of that too. Sometimes Stephen was trying to calm me down last night with Skyrim as I was like losing <laughs> my mind over Steam, and uh, he, and I was just like, "Dude, shut up! Let me play Diablo." Yeah, bro. yeah, basically. Uh, but no, and, and I said, "You know what? This game is like an eight. And and Stephen was like, "Yeah, but here's the problem: if you give the game an eight, suddenly everybody thinks that it's terrible." And that's really where we are with gaming right now. It's like it's the hyperbole. It's the this is the best game ever. Like I I don't understand how people can give Skyrim tens. I don't understand that. Maybe they're seeing the game in a different way than I am. But to me, the game is just not. I, I don't think any game except Chrono Cross is in a ten category. But that's just because everybody has their own way of scoring games. If you're on a five out of five scale. Then yeah, I could see Skyrim getting five out of five. But if you're on yeah. a hundred point scale, how can you give the game a hundred? Like that, just... that. That's the thing too. Is I think now the problem is that people don't see a ten as perfect. They see it as this game is among awesome. the top echelon of everything. And looking at it from that way, it makes sense. And it also makes sense from an industry standpoint because we want everybody to love more games because we want them to go out and buy more games. Yeah, and Skyrim has sold a metric buttload, which is an actual unit of measure. It's sold so many, and I think that that's awesome for the industry. But for us to just sit here and say that, yes, Skyrim is the end-all, be-all, and for it to have, like, what, a 97 on Metacritic? like That's kind of excessive. That's – I think it's a 96 or 97. Well, Metacritic's also, like, most of what's wrong with with games journalism right now. But it – baffles me it baffles me how i'm you know seeing these problems like you know the next game we're going to talk about i i wouldn't give diablo 3 a, a 97 90 no at least 110 at least 110 but no i i wouldn't because i can see flaws i can see problems and you know i don't think we don't go around looking at paintings handing them you know 10 out of 10 on a painting, you know, Roger Ebert uses a four-star scale, but that's a very different way of rating things than you know what used to be hundred-point scales or ten-point scales. And if people are going to make the argument that video games are art, how can you go around pinning numbers and awards onto games? You can't do that. Money involved, right? But you can't do that anymore. Like I'm, I'm tired of this. We, we, you guys, we're not going to get into a games are art discussion. But you can't sit here and say that the industry needs to move forward and we need to be more adult about the way we talk about video games and the way that we we're not putting scores and then suddenly start giving Skyrim or even Dark Souls ten out of ten and saying it's the best. For, freaking things since sliced bread i caught myself uh, i caught myself but you can't do that and i'm sick of the industry doing that i'm sick of looking at a game and they're like 10 out of 10 from game informer a plus from one up i'm like i don't care actually no i i, I 10 out of 10 yes a plus no i think a plus is okay because a plus implies that it isn't perfect it's just awesome right no no that's true i we we talked before on the site about whether we wanted to go to a, a letter grade system and I, you know i've been very open and i've said it multiple times i i don't want us to put scores on games because then i sit there like 
you know, it, oh god, if I was reviewing Skyrim, I'm like, do I do I rate it higher than Witcher 2? I had more fun with Witcher 2, but Skyrim's a bigger game, but I didn't enjoy it as much. Like, you know, that, I don't want to do that. I just don't want to sit down and think about a number. I hate numbers. I thought about just giving every game a five. Deal with it. People actually, I've noticed, and I, I, I'm, I'm sure they stopped it at this point. But uh, on GameFAQs, uh, readers can rev- do reviews. And I remember for a while when I was like psycho obsessed with Kingdom Hearts two coming out, I was reading reviews, and some people were giving reviews on games a one, and then inside of it being like, "This game is awesome. I gave it a one, so you'd read my review." Yeah, it's so. I'm tired of it. I hate game rankings. I hate Metacritic. I hate the hyperbole. I hate the world's first review score. I hate all of it. Like, we should be sitting down and discussing games like adults. We should be saying what we enjoy about them. We should be saying what we don't like about them. A review should be a personal assessment of a game. You know, like, you read my review of Dark Souls. You read Kyle's review of Dark Souls. Two very very differently focused you know i was more mechanics kyle was more talking about the nature and immersion of the world but that's what you're getting you're getting two different perspectives on the game and that's what a review is a review by its very nature is subjective if you if you gave me somebody who doesn't like kingdom hearts if you gave me kingdom hearts 3 you're going to get a very different review from if you gave it to a fan or if you gave it to somebody that had never played it before you can't can't get get objective Really? Really? What just what happened? Just happened? And now I can you, hear myself. You totally destroyed his rant. Wow. I just <laughs> – I hate all of you. Um, I'm, you can't, you I'm coming back. You can't have perfect objectivity, and I think that's what people want out of games journalism, but it doesn't exist. That is true. People people want people want to argue for perfect objectivity, but they also want their favorite game to get a high score so they can feel good about playing it. Exactly. It goes back to the issue of like how are fanboys made in the first place? I have the argument that fanboys are made because when I was a kid, I could only afford one game system at one time. So, you know, your parents get you a Super Nintendo or they get you a Sega Genesis and now you need to champion that thing. And that has never ended, and for some people it doesn't end when they're 30 and they can afford every game system. They still feel the need to champion something. And we I should probably it. talk about role-playing games. Yes. Okay. That was a weird tangent. I like role-playing games. Yep. Uh, so, MMORPGs. So uh, Diablo 3. I want I'm, it. I'm, play it. I'm, uh, I am not kidding when I say this. Uh we just got done talking about hyperbole, but uh, Diablo 3 is the most fun I've had this year. Playing the beta has been the most fun I've had this year. I don't know what it is about that game. Uh, I've played a bunch of loot hacks. You know, I played Dungeon Siege 3. I played Torchlight. You know, I don't know what gets into the water over at Blizzard, but they have just hit that secret sauce of making you feel awesome and making you enjoying exploring and finding stuff. I mean, it is just God. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I agree with the hyperbole regarding this game. Um, and what a I think hypocrite. It, I think it's <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I think it stems back to uh, what we were talking about numerous times on the podcast and per- and when we were just chatting, and that's the fact that. Again, not to down Torchlight because I think it's a great game, but Torchlight, Titan Quest, Sacred, all of those games are Diablo 2 with a lot of content. Or, oh, hey, we took one small new idea and added it to Diablo with a different graphical style and a different setting. Nope. 
And then Diablo 3 goes, yeah, Diablo 2 was great, but how about we make something new? And the entire skill system is rebuilt, and it makes it engaging again. The, the, just the thrust of the game is so different from all the Me Too games that have come after Diablo 2, whereas it feels like Blizzard is actually saying, yeah, we know we can make a great Diablo 2. We did. And then we did it again when we made the expansion, and then we did it again and again when we released patches that rebuilt the game. But we don't want to do that again. They're actually making a fresh experience. That so, so like what Diablo. what is new about? Because I just I've I've seen like a couple of streams of the beta, but like it, I'll start. it looks similar. Okay, like so it does. Look no, it. it's definitely similar in the you know run around, kill stuff, get loot concept, and that's important because that's Diablo. But we'll let Rob start. Okay, so here's how the game's different. Uh, first off. The game is completely focused on skills, and that goes for every character class. Whereas before, you're starting off a game and your barbarian is running around, usually just using a regular attack or bash, each character class is using their skills predominantly. There is almost no reason to use a regular attack in this game. Why? Because each character has been built around their skills helping out with their own personal resource management. But that's not even the best part about this game. The best part about Diablo 3 is that do you remember that when you leveled up in Diablo 2, you got attribute points and you got skill points? And the attribute points, you said, okay, I want a little bit more mana, I want a little bit more health, I want a little bit more dex. But if you didn't follow a build, you were breaking your character anyway. Exactly. You could very easily break a character. And then when you got a skill point, you would dump a skill point into either learning a new skill or upgrading a skill. And as Steven would point out, you could also break a character by doing this. And the – to to segue from that, that's the thing that Diablo 3 fixes. That's what I'm saying. So what Diablo 3 does is it says, okay, here's what we're going to have you do. When you level up, at certain levels, you unlock new skills. It's predetermined, and you get a statistical boost for every level. We've taken that away from you as a player. So no more building your character by allotting attribute points or skill points. Where the character creation comes in is that as you level up, you get new skill slots. You only have two at the start of the game to assign a skill. So even though you maybe have five skills, you can only assign two to your character. So what you start doing is you start mixing and matching skills to build your character. Okay, I'm playing as a witch doctor, and I start out with the blow dart skill and summon zombie dogs. But eventually I get a skill called haunt, which is kind of like a seeking missile of death. It's Traveling Plague from Magic the Gathering, for yes. those of us in the know. I'm going to use that for a while. Ooh, I leveled up to level six. Now I have a third skill slot. Okay, I'm going to use Grasp of the Undead, which is like a zombie grenade. I'm going to use that. So now I've created a ranged character. But Steven could say, all right, I'm going to take my own Witch Doctor, and I'm going to focus on the more short-range spells. So I'm going to use Fire Bats, which is like a freaking flamethrower. Uh, I'm going to use detonate on my zombie dogs to make them into projectiles. This, this entire argument doesn't work because I wouldn't play a witch doctor. Uh, I would play an awesome class like wizard. Okay, but what it means is that the skill – there's no wrong way to build a character. You can't break a character. It's as simple as going to an altar of Nephilim, changing your skill slots, and suddenly – your witch doctor or your monk or your wizard plays entirely different, and there's no repercussions on you. You now, are not screwed. Now, I, I agree with that, and the thing is that's going to sound to people like, oh, hey, then every character is the same. 
And basic, on, on a basic level, yes, leveling up, you're the same. Where the difference comes in is, in theory, the rune system, which is not in the beta. Well, we haven't, um, we haven't even gotten to runes yet. I, but I haven't even what, gotten there. What I think is great about it is that with Diablo 2, if I'm building a sorceress, odds are good I'm not using one of my level 1 skills. So I'm playing a sorceress, saving my skill point every level. And for my first hour of playing until I get to level 20 or 30, I'm not doing anything. I'm barely having any fun because I'm power leveling to when I can finish my build and dump all my skill points into one skill at a time. Whereas in Diablo 3, I felt like at every the moment-to-moment gameplay is more rewarding, and they've gotten rid of the, the bad kind of grinding. Now you can grind for loot. You can grind for experience. You can grind you know, for all the things that made Diablo fun, magic finding. But the grinding of, you know, oh, I have to run here and do all this inane stuff and power, power level so I can get to the point where my character is fun to play is gone. There's no need to respec your character. This game doesn't need a respec option because at the end of the day, my level 60 witch doctor is the same as somebody else's level 60 witch doctor. The difference comes in the skills that we choose and then the runes. And now runes aren't in the beta. They come later on in Act 1. And what runes do is you have different colored runes that fundamentally change the skill. And they come in different um, different Flavors. levels of runes. And they could – you'll attach a rune to, say, zombie dogs, and now your zombie dogs have a leech life skill that gives you health. Or your zombie dogs now do fire damage or poison damage, or you make it so that you can have a fourth zombie dog. The, the number of different ways to play this game – is mind-boggling. Nobody is going to play this game the same way unless, of course, there's an ultimate build, but that's what the bait has been for is for Blizzard to sit down and say, all right, let's hammer things out. They're constantly making changes, numerical changes to skills. Now, what this does is that now the focus has been taking, taken away upon making the proper character. The focus is now on trying different things, different experimentation, but now the focus is also on the loot. Because this was something that took me a, a couple of like a couple of play sessions to really realize, and I struggled with it at first. Your, the, dam- the damage of your skills is now based on your weapon. Yes, go ahead you have and explain it. Your your skills, even for the wizard, which at first I said, okay, that's kind of weird. But if you think about it, in Diablo two, as a sorceress, the only reason you wanted a different weapon was a for a greater percentage of mana, b for skill points, and you know there were other things too, but it never had to do with I need a more powerful weapon to make myself more, you know, directly powerful. Now, when you get a new wand, your skill, for example, you'll get a lightning skill that says, okay, this does it arcs three times, and it does 125 percent of your weapon damage. So you can get you can improve your skills just by getting a better weapon. So in effect, what this does is this gets rid of something like Diablo 1. Unless you build your entire character towards being a charged bolt sorceress, which I've done, um, your charged bolt is going to suck. Whereas now, if you say, hey, I want to I change gears. I want to start trying to use, you know, uh, gosh, what are some of my favorite wizard skills already? All of them. If I want to use a blade is kind of cool. Yeah, if, I wanna use, if, if you've been using, you know, lightning skills and now you want to use spectral blade – Oh, but I haven't put skill points in that is no longer the problem. Now you say, well, I have a decent weapon. Let me, you know, in theory, let me toss a rune in here, try some different stuff. And then you can change gears and you suddenly can use this other skill effectively. Yep. 
what what we're what we're saying right now we gave a very long answer to to Zach and we're only talking about the skills right now the game is about experimentation and it's no longer about power leveling it's not about punishing you for not making the decision that you're supposed yeah. to make my first necromancer i played in diablo 2 was absolutely broken i played it right when the game came out the necromancer didn't play properly i he used was- a pike he was completely broken. You know, I've seen so many different builds, you know, make sure you put this level into this skill at this time. You know, you can find all these different builds online and guides to creating characters. That's not the focus of Diablo 3 anymore. The focus of Diablo 3 is, first off, every character class feels strong as hell. Every character class in this game feels like a badass and that's so rewarding when you take out you know 20 enemies at once you just scatter them by the wayside you feel strong and it's all about experimentation it's all about trying new skills like you know i i was playing as a monk and i i started using the crippling wave skill which you just decimate like he just does this roundhouse kick that just ends everybody around you that's what makes Diablo 3 so interesting is that the focus has been taken away off of this is the only way to play the game. It's now all about the combat and about experimentation. Somebody asked me a question because we've been loving on this game like crazy. I don't know. I was just going to say as somebody who plays mostly JRPGs, like I am really stoked for this game. I want it so bad. Oh, my God. It, the story. Did you, play, did you play Diablo 2, Derek, or, or Diablo 1? Not that much. I played. I played a little bit of Diablo too. Like I, I honestly have never even beaten it. I've but, I've never played past the first act in Diablo two, mostly because I got Diablo two about a year and a half ago. <laughs> okay. Diablo three will make you happy. It it also. I'm, has... I'm really excited. It, the, the interesting thing is that like Blizzard's been been hinting at you know like a console port. I'm more interested in in the the ability to use a like a, a controller. I think it, you'll be able to do it. Because it seems Probably. like it seems like with this new emphasis on skills and and the the kind of like clicking focused nature of the genre so far, um, like there's not enough like I don't know something about the like having other skills on the skill bar and then the clicking with your left I don't know there's something that kind of like disconnects with me so I feel like using a a controller might be a good alternative to that like having having skills on the face buttons or on the triggers or something well that's actually what they said too they go we're not going to do this unless we can make it feel good that feels good man uh but they uh if they did that they say you know all right you can use the right bumper and all the face buttons for skills it would function very similar to the pc version and you know they put you you know they put your facing say on the right stick and your movement on the left stick and you know you can use skills like you know channeled skills that you know we spray lightning or something like that I think it would be great to see it on a console because personally, yeah. the, the the amount of time and money they've put into this game, it would I, I would think I mean after seeing how well Skyrim has done, which used to be a PC only series, I would love to see Diablo hit this you know colossal audience just by introducing it on the consoles. Well, the other thing we haven't even talked about is that Blizzard continues to blow me away with their presentation style. When I was playing StarCraft II, I just remember watching it and I'm like. I cannot believe their presentation. Like the, this feels so good, and it, the storytelling is great. I mean, I'm you. You start playing Diablo three, and it's the same thing. It's just a new. You can tell that they've moved forward with storytelling, and then there's little hints at the original games. Like you pick up journals from previous characters, you find out what happened to them. All tiny, of, tiny characters oh too from the previous God. games. Like I, 
it sent like, a shudder through like my spine. Like this is a game series that's very near and dear to my heart. Like for example, Rob gave Rob told me a story. Uh, for Diablo two fans, the guy who drove the caravan in Act Two, Warif. Rob ran into a completely random um, scenario where he was running out around in the world killing monsters, and he found Warif's body. And that says to me, okay, they're going to have random events in this game just yeah, like that. There are and that's ran- awesome. There are random events and random quests. At one point, you you have a random quest where you have to just survive a skeleton onslaught. And literally, there's something like 75 skeletons coming at you toward the end of it. They me, are- What's that? I said, come at me, bro. It, that's what's so awesome about this game is that it's moving the genre forward. It yes. feels new, but it still feels like Diablo. The whoosh of dropping an item or you know uh, using a health potion. Now even the health potions you can't spam them anymore. It really is all about you know doing enough damage to pick up a health globe to keep you going. I mean, now you're being strategic with your movement on the battlefield. And yeah, like that—that that, that's a good point. You know, I was playing and I said I was fighting a like a, a sub boss and he was punching me in the face. And instead of doing what I would do in Diablo 2, which is either teleport away and, you know, that sort of thing, I wasn't getting punched in the face. I was trying to back off and trying to pay attention to where I was in the room so I could circle around him and shoot him a little bit more. And it's just they've taken the game and they've gotten rid of all of like the really grindy, just repetitive yeah, we we haven't even gotten into the balancing issues. Like now, when you when you open up a uh, town portal, you have to sit there and let the town portal open. So you can't just do you know what I used to do with Durial, where I would open up a town portal, go in, do a little bit of damage to Durial, and run the hell away. You can't do that anymore. They now have uh, an item that lets you take your junk. Uh, vendor trash items and turn them into crafting materials because there's a whole artisan system in this game where you have followers that you know you're upgrading them so you can make new recipes for items and stuff. I mean, this game is just good God! I, I am so happy with this game, and it's it's, it's the freaking beta. <laughs> Holy! It, I'm, I'm, take, the takeaway from all this is that it's packed to the gills with stuff. It shouldn't disappoint people. Content. Uh, Yes, it is packed with content. Stuff. And uh, if you want an experience that is identical to Diablo 2, you may be disappointed. I I really feel this game is going to come out and there's going to be a huge backlash because people are going to go, OMG, I don't have control over my character anymore because there are no, you know, you can't put skill points in anymore. So if you thought Torchlight was better than Diablo 2, then you're probably going to like Torchlight 2 better than Diablo 3. But for me, moving the genre forward and and like Stephen was saying, cutting out the BS, putting the focus on loot so that now every character is looking for loot. Every character – it's all about getting stronger. It's a natural progression of just being a badass. I mean I am so happy with this game. People that were worried about it, it feels like Diablo, but it just feels new. new. It does not – where Diablo 2 felt like an expanded version of Diablo 1, this feels like an evolution, revolution change for Diablo, and it's so positive. I mean how can you not smile when you summon a little shaman that turns people into chickens? Okay. How can I not smile at that? I mean just every character in this game feels awesome. Uh, they, the way they're handling passive skills, I mean – it's doing away with all the BS from Diablo 2. I love Diablo 2. It's one of my favorite games. But 
you got to go into that game with a mindset of power leveling and making sure that you make your character properly. They've done away with all that. Diablo 3 is about experimentation and, hey, try new stuff. Just try new stuff. Have fun. That's what this game is about. This game is about having fun. And Steven and I haven't even had a chance to play together. We haven't even had a chance to do the multiplayer yet. I mean, that's what that's where Diablo 3 is really going to take off. I'm, I'm sorry. Every fan that has been worried about this game and saying, oh, my God, you're going to ruin Diablo, play the goddamn beta. Just play. Yeah, but you have to keep in mind, too, Rob, that when StarCraft came out, StarCraft 2 came out, everybody was upset that it didn't change enough. This is going to be the opposite. Everyone's yeah. going to complain that it changed too much. I think where but, StarCraft 2 played it safe, you're right. Star, Diablo 3 is making a lot more changes, but so far, I love all of them. Do you guys have any questions like regarding the game? Yeah, because we've just absolutely gone nuts over here. <laughs> Zach? What? Derek? What? <laughs> oh, good to know Zach you, was I, paying attention. I, I, so I don't have any attention. specific questions. No, I, I think it looks awesome, it's, really. It, it looks good. I'm I mean, excited. you pretty much explained everything I would have asked. So. Uh, Thank you for your informative explanation. I'm so happy There's with this. There's so much content in this podcast. I am so happy with Diablo 3. Like, I'm glad for you, Rob. No, because I felt really – like my uh, brother-in-law was just like, you know, you sound so jaded about games. You know, you're down on Skyrim. You're down on Arkham City. You don't really want to play Assassin's Creed. And I was like, yeah, you know, I am being a little too cynical. Like I- I'm hating everything right now except for Dark Souls. I'm, I'm hating everything, and I- you know, I feel like I'm not enjoying games. I was laughing and smiling the whole time I was playing Diablo three. Yep. Are there are there ponies and kittens? No, but with? there are. But there are in the new cow level. There are holy cows. Is there a new cow level? Yeah, apparently it's like some sort of heavenly cow level, and the cows are actually called holy cow. Huh. I'm just happy that. I need a game that's going to make me happy. I do feel like I've been too down on games lately, and. I think Diablo 3 is going to uh, make me like a little kid again and make me happy. Rob is just a model Sith Lord. He embraces his anger. Oh, I just love the witch. To me, the witch doctor is the best parts of the druid and necromancer combined into pure unbridled awesome. So should we uh, should we bring up a little bit of news because there's some fairly substantial news that uh, well, well can, I, can I just uh, just to do the nice transition with Diablo uh, apparently they're going to show the opening cinematic at the VGAs on December 10th my guess is a release date announcement that it's going to blow up and it's going to be like I, my one, guess one, 2012 my guess is a release date announcement I don't know how lucky we're going to be with that but I'm hopeful uh, I think that the VGAs are a Turn the sound really low, like look for a volume lower than mute, uh, and then when the trailer starts up for whatever you want to watch, that's when you unmute it. So Diablo 3, opening cinematic, December 10th. I'm excited. Not as excited as you are, but you know. I'm so happy. But yeah, so so we we do have some big news. I think the biggest news this, this week has been that uh, Xenoblade Chronicles is now coming to North America officially. Good for you, uh, Nintendo. In in April, so you know. Thank you, Operation I think I might Rainfall. have to dust off my Wii to to play some Skyward Sword and yep. then, you know leave it undusted to uh, to play Xenoblade okay. in April time. I, I'm very excited that this is coming out. So I, I'm not trying to rain on anyone's parade. I'm giving serious consideration to buying a Wii just to play this game. But here's my question: Is this game going to sell? Probably well, not. It's probably Game, not. It's GameStop only. It's not it? in Canada. Yeah, it's it's That's pretty silly. much 
it's it's getting a very strange release. So it's probably not going to sell very much, but I'm sure there's a fairly substantial number of people that will buy it. I have yeah. I have a weird feeling it. that they're going to try to market it like because of Operation Rainfall and because of all the criticism surrounding Nintendo's decision to not bring it here originally, and then they were like, "LOL, troll." Um, I think they're really going to. I don't know. I, I I could be completely wrong, but something tells me they're going to do something to to market it a lot, and it. I don't think it's going to sell amazingly, but I wish it would because it's so good. Yeah, I feel like I feel like it will probably meet their their admittedly low expectations. Um, but I don't know beyond that. I think it's great that it's coming here, um, and I'm pretty sure they knew this was going to happen a while ago. But they never ever, you know, they don't throw a bone in terms of hey, keep your eyes open. Yeah. I'm excited for it. I just I have a feeling that it's not going to sell that well, and then Nintendo's going to be like, "See, we told you it wasn't going to sell so well." But at least they're doing it, and that's that's kind of awesome. I'm happy. I feel. I, see, on the one hand, I'm skeptical of it selling well, but on the other hand, I feel like that there are a fairly substantial number of people who didn't import it and are still interested in playing it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. More news. More news. Um, we we also have uh, another another big announcement. This one kind of unexpected is the South Park role playing game what coming, coming uh, <laughs> next next year. Um, it was it was announced in in this uh, this month's Game Informer. So if you want the full details on that, check it out. But it looks like uh, you know obviously South Park characters, but in in a slightly more fantasy South Park setting um, with with a Paper Mario style. Uh, battle system so you know we'll see how that goes i i it's being developed by obsidian so oh. i have some faith. and it has it has the full involvement of trey parker and matt stone as opposed to the other games they're Ooh. writing the dialogue and the story so the jokes sh- should be i'm anticipating it'll be south park lampoons pop culture and all that and you know tv shows and movies and occasionally games i'm just anticipating a south park that is folk the jokes are focused solely on the video game world but did that work? Didn't they do that with the Simpsons uh, Grand Theft Auto like game? And no yeah, but that really wasn't cared. that wasn't very good. Though. Yeah, okay. that game wasn't actually good though. Okay. And and okay. way to pass judgment on a game that isn't even out yet. All right, what wait, which the that no, I mean the the new South Park game. You guys are saying, well, that you know the Simpsons game wasn't good. Well, how do you know that the South Park game was going to be good? I'm not saying that the game is. Well, good. I'm saying that Trey Parker and Matt Stone are, are pretty solid. I just saw Book of Mormon. It was great. Oh God, oh, I want to see it so bad. So good. I hate um, you. Yeah, but anyways, more news. Um, we actually something that that hasn't popped up on the on the site yet, but is that I've noticed uh, in my perusings of the internet is that Ultima Seven, the complete edition, is now available on Good Old Games. Cool. Um, so, yeah. So I've been an Ultima fan, but cool. No, it's this is apparently the 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 one to play. It gets rid of like most of the the like tactical combat and stuff, but the story is supposed to be really good. Um, and uh, yeah, so that went up on GOG. Uh, it's it's like six bucks, so you should you should probably just buy it. Um, also, the Spoonie Spoonie Bard person, not Spoonie Bard, Spoonie Experiment, whatever his name is, yeah, did uh, did a, a movie on it. So. You should uh, check that out, maybe. <laughs> more news. Um, more news. Uh, so the is speaking of Skyrim that you know that I've been enjoying so much. They just released their their uh, first big patch for the game, which honestly, if you look at the patch notes, didn't do a whole lot. Apparently, it fixed the uh, the PS3 save issue, right? Um, and but aside from that, now now we have a whole bunch of new issues, uh, such as the Rob's previously mentioned uh, backwards dragons. 
and broken magic resistances. And I don't understand why everyone's saying that's a glitch. That's a new feature. <laughs> I'm just bummed that I they did. took out the dead bodies that'll show up at your wedding. I was kind of hoping to run into that. Uh, I was what? hoping that they would just put a beeping sound whenever the dragon goes backwards. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what did they do? There was like a, a glitch that sometimes happened where if you, you get married in the game, because, you know, you can get married. That's a glitch. That just like dead, that dead, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, uh, that dead bodies would, would show up at your wedding. Same um, thing happened to my brother. Instead of, <laughs> I don't understand. How, how does that happen? I don't know. Dude, man, hookers, like they, they start, you know, asking for money and you don't have, an... oh, you meant in the game. Yep. Um, oh my fault. But anyway, so so this the <laughs> patch the patch has fixed some things, broken others. But uh, Bethesda also announced that they're coming out with a new patch uh, <laughs> to patch the patch, the patch, the patch, the patch, um, which should hopefully fix some of the the other stuff in you know, that's that's been going wrong with the game. I, they do they do have some so a good deal of patching to do, despite how good the game is so far. I feel bad for Bethesda, but at the same like because they they were under so much pressure to get that patch out and fix the PlayStation Three and to get the textures to work properly on 360. But you know, really, guys, you didn't notice backwards flying dragons when you I were mean, patching. I mean, that's thing? one of those things that like you know they fixed the things that they were supposed to patch, but like you know what what where, where are you gonna like I haven't run into any backwards flying dragons yet you know it's it's one of those like small things that is just what are those small things you also have the thing is rob though you have to consider the the size of that world and the number of variables that can go into a situation content there's no way they could have yes there's no way that they could possibly test for every contingency and it's possible that it did just slip through because they didn't have a whole lot of time to test that either i know but didn't todd howard say that what what they did to test this game was they did like multiple iterations like they just had numerous computers just running the game and running the game and running the game until like problems would arise so i I just was kind of figuring that the the first patch it feels like they went back a step because the game was pretty solid when it was released it was surprisingly playing well for a bethesda rpg and now they seem to have on a step back. Yeah, I don't know. The one thing that I want fixed is that the game crashes to te- to desktop like way too much, and I'll just lose. Like, I've only had that happen once. Oh no, I've had that. I mean, I've, I think I've heard that it's like a a graphics card like overheating uh, issue. Uh, so I have to look into whether you know because I transported my computer to school, you know, back and forth to school so many times that that's not working right, or that it's just you know actually overheating, or that the game is just crashing. For what no I want. What I want fixed is for my archer character, I want it fixed where sometimes the sneak attack just won't work with archery. And it seems to be a very limited problem, but I have checked on message boards, and I'm not the only one, like, completely hidden, shoot one guy with an arrow, and I don't get the sneak attack, and then it's just – that is – yeah, that's pissing me off. They've got some patching to do, but I have have faith. Yeah, I mean, um, Bethesda is going to support this game. I mean, for God's sake, it's their big release. And, and and Elder Scrolls, what everybody's kind of forgetting is that Elder Scrolls is Bethesda's baby, not Fallout. This is their baby. This is this is the series that made these guys. And as much as they had fun making Fallout Three, this is the game that they all wanted to work on. So, it's it's their game. I mean, it's their game series. It's what they it's what they grew up with. It's what they've been developing, and they're going to treat it with TLC. I mean. So don't worry, it'll it'll get there. Dragons yeah. will fly forward. <laughs> so I think uh, for for the most part, that's all the news we've got for this week. So all right, all right. So uh, bring it bring it home, Rob. All right. <laughs> 
so thank you everybody for listening to the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to us through iTunes, the RSS feed. Make sure to give us ratings on iTunes. We like to hear from you guys. Uh, I guess our next episode is probably going to be the end of the year podcast where we're going to make some crazy predictions. I might be completely wrong in every one again like I was before, which kind of upsets me. Uh, but yeah, we'll talk about that. I believe Kyle is on a trip here next week to see a secret game, so maybe we'll have him on to talk about it. It's a game I'm very excited about. Uh, we should also have another developer interview coming up. We're getting that lined up. So we definitely have a lot of content as we roll into the new year. Make sure you guys are listening. Ask us questions on the message boards. I'd like to do like a, a question episode. God help us. I'd like to do a question episode where you guys, you know, ask us about games and whatnot. We're still thinking about that Shadow Hearts podcast. I just got to find time to play those games. Um, yeah, lots of things planned. So for Zach. To the moon. To the moon. Yeah, we do need to talk about To the Moon. We need to do that at some point. We will absolutely be talking about that at least a little bit. Excellent. Excellent. So for Zach, for Steven, for Derek, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll see you all later. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I'm RPG fan uh, reviews editor Bob Richardson, and we're with Rob Steinman. He's another reviewer at RPG fan and podcast host. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm just refereeing right now. <laughs> We're speaking with uh, producer of Path of Exile and co-founder of Grinding Gear Games, Chris Wilson. Grinding hey Gear Games was founded in Auckland, New Zealand in 2006, but they only recently started working on Path of Exile in 2010. Specifically, Chris graduated from the University of Auckland in 2004 after studying computer science and commerce. He also earned first-class honors in computer science. His initial work in software security afforded him the opportunity to co-found and invest in Grinding Gear Games. Chris, welcome. Hi. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. That was a great. That was a freaky ass bio, Bob. Like I'm not even <laughs> kidding right now. Like you just told the dude's life story. Yeah, stalker yeah, mode. He, <laughs> Total stalker website. mode, Bob. <laughs> I did my research. Okay. All right. <laughs> There was actually one thing that was wrong, though. We actually started work on this project um, in 2006 when we founded the company, so we're five years oh, in. Oh, really? Now. Wow. Okay. My mistake. It's okay. All right. Uh, should we dive right in, then? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay. Uh, Path of Exile was clearly inspired by Blizzard's Diablo, but it definitely seems like it wants to establish its own identity. What was your vision when you started making Path of Exile? Well, way back at the beginning, we were a bunch of guys who really liked action RPGs. And we'd played, you know, a whole bunch, ranging from Diablo to Titan Quest, Dungeon Siege. And there were various things that we liked from each game. And because we had some spare time and money, we decided we'd try to make our own one, taking the bits that we liked from other games, as well as a few new ideas that we had. So our vision was basically to make the game that we would want to play as gamers for gamers. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so what are you most proud of in creating Path of Exile? I mean, you've got like this kind of dark fantasy world, you know, you got a, got a loot system in it. it. It definitely is pulling, like you said, from a lot of different genres. But what are you most proud of? Like what makes this game, what helps this game to stand out? The thing, that I, the thing that I'm personally most proud of is that at the moment in beta, there are people playing the game and they're having fun. You know, the systems that we've put in place seem to be working, and there are people out there who will choose to spend their free time, well, quite a lot of their free time playing the game. That's my, that's my proudest thing about it. Mm -hmm. um, there are lots of systems in the game that I feel have worked really well. I mean, 
an arbitrary example of one which was surprisingly um, successful in my opinion is the fact that we went with having no gold in the game you know you can't find gold coins as you play through instead you find um, items of varying power that do things to your character or items and so you can trade these with other players or just use them on the spot and you know we initially thought we were doing this to solve a few problems with gold and other games but it's been something the players have really liked and we've had a lot of positive feedback on that yeah, it's nice to have a form of currency that can also be used. It's kind of multifaceted. I personally like that. Yeah, it, it meets our criteria of what a good currency should be because whenever you pick any up, you have the choice of whether you could use it to improve yourself. Hence, you're kind of less susceptible to inflation because there's mm-hmm. a sink built into every piece of currency. Yeah, yeah that's a, something a lot of MMOs struggle with, so I was really happy to see it here. Uh, what characteristics of Path of Exile have... What characteristics does it have that will keep players uh, from looking at it and shrugging it off as just another Diablo clone? There are a few things there which um, should help it stand out. The first is that it's played online on our servers, so it's, it's not a single-player game. And the characters are persistent and securely stored, so you have an online virtual economy that you can play in. This is important for a couple of reasons. Firstly, not that many action RPGs actually bother implementing such a complex system, so there aren't very many options if a player wants to play online like an MMO, basically. And secondly, for the really hardcore players who take it very seriously and spend a lot of time trying to accumulate items, then it's vital that they know that the other players aren't just cheating their way to items by having single-player safe games and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There, there are a few other systems as well which are relatively different than um, Blizzard's Diablo. An example is our flask system in-game. You know, We reviewed how other games do potions and basically mm-hmm. found that in all cases they were just really spammy. You know, you go to the shop and you buy 50 potions and then when you're playing you just drink potions constantly mm-hmm. and you know, <laughs> run out of potions back to town. So we designed a system that has two differences. The first one is that we have these flasks that refill as you kill the monsters. So there's less trips to town providing that you're killing at a good enough speed. And of course this means that if you're not killing fast enough, you do have to go and refill them elsewhere. But it means that a player who's playing, you know, the, the right amount of power for their area has less downtime. And then the obvious thing, now that you have these refillable flasks, is that you can put item properties on them. So they can get mods like the rest of your equipment, and this means that they're now part of your build. For example, you might be playing a mana-intensive character who wants some really big potions, or you might be playing a character that spikes a lot of damage and wants some really fast potions. And then there's other things, like they can you know, make it so you're not on fire anymore or make you run faster while you're healing. And mm-hmm. because of this... Especially in PvP, potions become less of just a thing you press occasionally and more of an integral part of the character's build. Most of our examples about how we're different from other action RPGs are relatively specific action RPG things like that that we feel are an improvement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I was personally interested in the balance. How did you decide the balance of potion regen? Because when I was playing, it never felt like I was always full, but it never felt like I was empty. I was able to use my mana and health potions adequately, and the game just knew how much I needed over time. That's basically luck, I think, there. We've actually had <laughs> enough, enough feedback about the potions recently that we have a couple of designers working on rebalancing them. In many cases, it works well, like you suggested, and that's the experience I often get when I'm playing. But a few people have issues where they don't have enough charges or they feel that they're pressing the potion button a little too often and would rather that they had more effects, but you use them less, uh, less frequently. Yep. So we're, we're taking that back to first principles to try to get a better speed, um, mm-hmm. see if we can find more fun in that system. But overall, it's working how we want to. It's just a matter of continuing the balance iteration. Excellent, excellent. 
Uh, so the current beta only features uh, two acts uh, with successive difficulties so that you have kind of like that end game content. So how many acts is the actual game going to have and what sort of content do you, do you have so that once you beat the game, you're not running into a problem where, well, now you beat it, there's nothing else to do. Are those difficulties going to be persistent in the final product? So to answer your first question, we currently have two acts, as you've said, and we're planning a third one for a release and then successive further acts every six or nine months after the game is finished, you know, oh, as cool. we get them ready. So, I mean, th- this is an ongoing, you know, decade-long project wow. as far as we're concerned. <laughs> so we-, we expect that after a few years, it'll be a pretty large game, you know, hosting five or six acts by then. And mm-hmm. we have a lot of plans and ideas for what's going to happen with the story and those acts. In terms of the um, the question about what the end game consists of, we understand that... If you just repeat the you know same difficulties, the same acts with different um, you know monster difficulty over and over, it does help prolong the gameplay, especially with the randomly generated areas. But players often demand quite a lot more, and to to cope with this, we've tried a few experimental strategies. For example, we've previously had a final fourth difficulty level that was completely flat. Um, you know, all the monsters are exactly the same level, giving the player complete freedom of where they want to play. This is actually something that Blizzard recently announced for Diablo 3. But when we tried this last year, we just we, it didn't work with our game. You know, players would just farm in the specific area that their particular character was good at playing in, and it, it really didn't add anything to us. So we scrapped that and instead are trying a set of randomly generated areas that you can play in at the end that show off as many of our different assets as possible. So instead of saying to players you can play anywhere in the game, we give you random slices of anywhere in the game that you can't necessarily control which they are or the monster composition. And if you play through those and you know successively beat each one, you get uh, greater opportunities of getting the best items in the game. And this is something that players generally like. I mean, they're forced into playing there at the moment, and they haven't said they hate it, though we're not 100% sure that we're going to go with that strategy upon release, but that's what Mm -hmm. the beta is for. It gives us a good chance to try things like this. And we've had all sorts of wacky ideas for other stuff we can try soon, you know, like challenge mode levels or special levels you have to give a few items to get access to, and then the rewards are really good, and it's a bit of a gamble whether or not the run is going to pay off and so on. So there's a um, a few cool ideas we're going to try in the coming weeks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to go off something you were saying, you're, it kind of sounds like you're you're doing sort of a combination of having a full product and some um, DLC kind of like episodes afterward. So now how do you guys prevent from running into the problem of like, you know, us all sitting around waiting for Valve to release Half-Life Episode 3? Do you guys already have these further acts kind of planned out? You kind of intimated that you have some ideas. Yeah, we we do know what kind of things we want to happen with more and more planning in the sooner acts and less and less in the later ones. And our intention is basically to just have a portion of the team working on churning that content out. I mean, an example of how that can work successfully, I guess, is with Guild Wars. They managed to release an expansion on schedule for several expansions, you know, like clockwork for the first few years after the game was released and the players began to trust that the expansions were coming out on time. Mm-hmm. And that, that's something that I definitely aspire to being able to achieve if sure. we can have the, the, the extra acts coming out on a regular schedule. That's something hard to do. We see constant delays in the industry. So if you could do that, you're going to earn a lot of loyal uh, fans. Well, we'll try. <laughs> uh, we understand there's a sixth class not including the beta yet. Is there any chance you could tell us what that class is or anything about it? So we haven't announced the sixth class yet, but his um, passive skills are all present in the passive skill tree along with the other classes. Mm-hmm. And although that one is less refined than the other ones are because people aren't actually playing it except internally in our office, um, it's relatively easy to see by looking at those passive skills that the character 
uh, likes to use daggers or claws, for example, and favors fast attacking as well as a slight emphasis on spells. So it's pretty easy to see the archetype we're going for there, though we haven't announced details of what the class looks like or what the class's name is yet. This one kind of goes along with it, Bob. I'm going to let you take care of this because you're talking about Final Fantasy X, and I, I hate Final Fantasy. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> and everyone stops listening now. <laughs> the passive point system seems quite similar to Final Fantasy X's Sphere Grid, and the socket abilities resembles Final Fantasy uh, VII's Materia system. Did these serve as inspirations for your take on these mechanics, and what other characteristics of Path of Exile were inspired by other games? I'm a big fan of Final Fantasy VII, and I loved the Materia system when we played through it, as did several of our other developers. Yeah. And it's interesting because discussion, how are we going to handle our skills, initially had itemized skills that weren't on gems. You know, it wasn't at all like the Materia system. And we were discussing the pros and cons of this, and eventually, um, you know, ideas were suggested that were relatively similar to that. And we realized, well, look, there are lots of interesting things that that game does that have never been done before in an action RPG setting, like the ability to link skills together so that if you're, you know, attacked, it could counter with one of the skills and various other things. And we saw there was a lot of design space there that other games hadn't taken advantage of. And so that was a conscious inspiration. I've never actually played Final Fantasy X, so my work on designing the passive tree, it was pointed out to me afterwards, you know, Chris, this is an awful lot like the sphere grid from Final Fantasy X. <laughs> and that prompted me to look into that, and, you know, I, I, it, it looks like a neat system. Ours is, ours is a little different, as far as I understand it. In their one, you have a place on the grid where you currently are, whereas in ours, you can put a point on any peripheral node at the extent of your reach. So there's a slight difference there, but... Yep. In terms of what other inspirations there were, a strong one is that the, the server architecture they used in Guild Wars, the way you have a set of towns that you meet many players and then you would venture off into the wilderness with just a small party, that was something that we really liked from that game and made sure to have the same capabilities in Path of Exile, except we tried to improve it by throwing in random area generation, as well as the ability to reform parties and re-enter areas once you know, you've been kicked out of them for whatever reason. So with, with our few improvements there, we're quite happy with that as a system. Other than that, we were inspired by a smorgasbord of different uh, features from various action RPGs. You know, there should be little inspirations in there from many, many different action RPGs we've played over the years. Cool. Yeah, I was really happy to see the randomly generated dungeons. That's something a lot of action RPG people or uh, people who like roguelikes love is the randomly generated stuff. So that was a great direction to take them, I think, personally. Thanks. <laughs> uh, so now, based on Bob's time with the preview build it's a, he was telling us about the spells and abilities has that all been pretty much sent in stone or are you guys planning on adding things maybe taking away things as the balance of the game continues to go forward we've still got quite a lot of, of spells and abilities to add i mean i think at the moment we're up to 45 unique abilities in the game and that includes quite a lot of things like um curses where there is say seven of them that are basically the same ability just with a different graphic and a slightly different effects that it has on a player but as far as implementation goes you cursed someone if you see what i mean so there's after subtracting those there's probably only 40 unique abilities so far and our plan is to launch with 100 so there's still quite a lot that are in a partially developed stage and we're trying to patch those in as they become ready i mean there's some quite interesting ones on the drawing board that we'll try to get in there before christmas but otherwise um after a small christmas break for our workers it's likely we'll have a few dozen more ready the ones that are partially finished at the moment at least mm-hmm. Uh, the current beta offers sparse lore and an atmosphere of small clusters of people just barely getting by. What can we expect in terms of a storyline once the game is released? 
you're correct about the atmosphere of small clusters of people barely getting by. This um, is a very hostile continent that these people have been exiled to, and you know, the, it's not a, it's not a situation where you stroll up to a village and the natives are completely happy to you know shower you with gifts for going and doing a bunch of fetch quests for them. We're trying to we're trying to, in some ways minimize the silliness of the quest system you know people are wanting you to do relatively important things for them and although the law is somewhat sparse at the moment we have quite a lot of writing and different content um, we're working on voice acting for example which mm-hmm. isn't properly represented in the beta so we are hoping on making it more apparent we've got a somewhat show rather than tell philosophy towards the stuff for example if we can bake in a lot of the description into the scene that you're playing through rather than make you read a wall of text about it then we'll try to do so Mm-hmm. And a lot of players have commented that they'd love to see more of the lore. Um, the beta at the moment doesn't show very much. And part of this is because when the player is exiled, the first act doesn't just sit them down and explain to them everything that's going on in this world. You know, it has them kind of somewhat purposefully, aimlessly try to infer what's going on. The second act helps solidify things a little bit more. And the third act explains quite a lot of the backstory and, you know, actually has conflicts that the player helps resolve in the world. So it's on purpose trying to make the player have to guess at what's going on towards the beginning of the game. But we have a ton of writing that will hopefully help make it clearer for those people who love talking to NPCs and hearing a lot of what they have to say. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, so now PvP is obviously a huge part of these kind of uh, dungeon crawl, Diablo-type games. Um, some people really don't like to play that sort of aspect or they don't like to play cooperatively with other people. Do you think that Path of Exile is going to be the type of game that you can enjoy single player or is this something where you get the most out of it by playing it as a multiplayer experience? So we've designed the entire game that you could play it without having to interact with any other players and you can do this by just you know turning off the chat channel, ignoring the people in town and playing by yourself in your own private areas and a lot of people do this. I mean, when I sit down to play it casually in the evening, I generally play by myself, you know, mostly because um, it's just the way I've played action RPGs in the past compared with some people in our office who will always try to get a maximum party size of as large as they can you know, to play with a whole bunch of strangers to enjoy it that way. So we've even designed a lot of the end game content so that you don't need to party up. The goal is that a player should be able to get any uh, reward that they could get in a party by themselves. It's just that it may be a little more difficult because they're more specialized. You know, there may be situations where it's beneficial to play with another player so that you can get some, say, tanking when you're doing a lot of damage. But a well-designed character should be able to deal with it all solo. And of course, it gets a little bit harder if you're playing with a party on purpose so that we can afford to give them better rewards. Mm-hmm. With regard to PvP, we don't want to force anyone into PvP, but yet we want to put PvP as a prominent system in the game. So we have a bunch of PvP designs here. Um, for example, we have planned arenas and tournaments. So if a player is a competitive PvP guy, they can just play in those all day long and accumulate rating and rewards. And then we have some certain game modes that you can optionally play in, which allow you to um, invade other people's instances and kill them and take their items. And that's a very, very hardcore form of PvP. We'd only expect a few percent of the players to enjoy it. But for those players that do, that game mode is available optionally if they'd like to play there. And um, that design of that game mode is a little bit reminiscent of Darkfall Online and other games where you can take people's stuff when you grief them. <laughs> we've had, oh, we've had a, lot of, a lot of players, especially from Europe, very excited about that mode. And um, 
I have to stress it won't be forced upon the other players who aren't interested. So mm-hmm. the basic the basic goal is that no one is forced into PvP or grouping up, but there are definitely incentives to play both if they'd like to to get the full experience. Mm-hmm. That uh, not trying to take away from Bob's next question, but it, it kind of seems to go right in. Uh, does the game kind of have like a toggle switch for B- for PvP? Is it all arena based? Uh, it, like, how do you handle that? At, at this stage, there's no toggle switch. Basically, when in the current beta as it stands, when you're playing, the only time that you encounter PvP is on some uh, quest in Act 2, where if you're playing with your friends and they choose a different option than you do in a certain quest, you know, to save someone or to fight them, then you get to fight your friends alongside that person. Which oh, is so kind it's, of a lot- <laughs> it's like the end of Streets of Rage. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, we- so we threw that in. It's, it's, it's a way of testing PvP without actually saying to players, we now expect you to play PvP competitively. So people have been doing a little bit of PvP there, but without the expectation that they have to take it super seriously. Um, in, in terms of your actual question about other PvP, basically players will be able to get into PvP situations because of choices they've made with either game modes that they've played in or things like entering a tournament. So you, when you're playing through the game world, normally you won't have to worry about people busting into your instance and killing you. Um, as for world pvp in the normal game mode whether two players can consensually go hostile on each other i'm not certain yet we could do that um it would just be a matter of making sure that it works okay within the framework of other stuff we've set up mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting interesting okay uh we understand that path is and will always be free with the exception of purchase uh, purchasable aesthetics could you tell us more about these purchasables and if there are any other ways for people to spend money on the game so we decided we'd make Path of Exile free way back in 2006 when we started work on the projects. And at this stage, there were, you know, there were some free Asian games, but it just wasn't something that was done in the West. And our killer business partners would come in and be the first free-to-play game, and we'd just sweep all the money and it would be great. Then it took five years to make, so now every other game is free-to-play. And one thing that really disturbs us when we play these games is just, like, the design of the microtransactions that they sell just literally takes away from the game. Like, you take the fun and you say to players, you have to pay for this fun, and you have less fun if you're not paying for it. And they design systems, for example, where you can get experience potions that double the experience gain, and then they say to players, well, if you don't get one of these, we're going to make the game super grindy, so it takes twice as long as the fun amount of time. And so we're really disappointed by these kind of things in other games so we vowed that we're never going to pull any cheap tricks regarding experience potions and stuff like that and we're not going to directly sell power that let people skip game content oh you're and not going to sell we're codes. not going to, <laughs> right we're not going to allow people to um to pay for access to like an act that another player doesn't have access to so our, our pledges here are that the game content is completely free and that we're not selling power and that basically there's a fair competitive playing field for things like pvp that people take seriously mm-hmm. you know i mean how can how can someone take PvP seriously when another player can just buy all the good items in 20 minutes? You know, it's it's something where the player has to be rewarded for their good decisions and their careful trading and spending a lot of time finding stuff, and that's what these players really want. So, with all of that stuff removed, what can we sell? Well, it turns out there are a lot of games that do successfully sell aesthetic stuff. Examples of Maple Story makes a lot of money, and they basically sell costumes that your character can dress up in. And although our game is a little bit more dark and serious, we can't you know directly sell, um, you know sparkling wings for example without the players complaining we we do have a we do have a whole lot of um different aesthetic stuff especially alternate skills so an example is you might encounter a boss in the game that uses a special skill on you that a player has access to but it looks totally awesome and then for a few dollars you have the ability to make your version of that skill look the same as the boss's one Mm. or perhaps we'd sell an additional victory animation so after you finish a pvp fight you can like head stomp the other guy or we could sell 
a purely cosmetic pet, like a crow that flies around after you and pecks out the eyes of the guys that you've killed. You know, <laughs> relatively, relatively dark thematic stuff that no serious player would be too embarrassed to having tagged on their character. And there's quite a lot of neat ideas we have there for things that should be appealing to this type of player that allow them to donate to the company while not getting any direct gameplay advantage. Yeah. Um, you, know, you can go so far as like swords made out of crystal or various other designs that are more cool than the existing ones. Mm-hmm. That sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, and that, that definitely helps to distinguish you guys. I know that the, the community right now, some members of the community are up in arms over Diablo 3's auction house, and it, I think that helps you guys to create an audience for yourselves. If people are that upset with the auction house in Diablo 3, then, hey, this this Path of Exile doesn't have this system. It's purely aesthetic, and so that helps you guys to get a different audience. That's actually pretty smart on your part. Yeah. Thanks. How do you well, – Sorry, go on. No, go on. I was going to say it's partly because we are gamers ourselves, and if we were playing this game and you know content or power were sold, we would be sorely disappointed and probably turned off, and we'd just go spend our time playing something else. Mm-hmm. So that's why we'd rather have the monetization system that we'd want to play. And as a company, we understand that if, if you sell less stuff, you'll probably make less money, but we'd rather make less money from a much larger group of players, and we feel that's a low-variance, less-risky play to do it. I mean... Our life savings are on the line here, so we'd rather aim for something that involves more players than try to extract more money from a much smaller group. If you have a crow that pecks out my fallen enemy's eyes, I will pay for that. I'll give you (laughs) – I will throw a couple bucks at you for that because that's pretty awesome. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) We'll also have a a kitty cat that urinates on people after they're dead. Like. You could have fun, but at the same time, like you said, you want it to fit in with the world. You don't want to have angel wings on your allies or anything like that. You want to create this thematic kind of dark world, and I, I think that that's also really important. Yeah. yeah. Our art team is definitely on that. <laughs> How far do you expect you'll go in terms of like gore? Do you expect to get like God of War style of gore or uh, more low-key than that? Well, the first um... – aesthetic item that we designed was a gore trinket that quadruples the gore that the characters generate. Oh, God. So if you're you put, playing with someone... You and put they... bloody mess in the game. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Not double, I mean, not you're... triple, quadruple. <laughs> the, the basic idea is if you're playing with some friend and there's all this gore coming out of his attacks, then he must be far more awesome than you. And, you know, for eight ninety nine <laughs> or whatever the price is, you can have the same thing. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, these things are all designed so other people can see them primarily, of course. I mean, you know, when a guy levels up, instead of a white beam of light or whatever, you can have this giant, you know, ceremony that occurs from the from the sky if you want to, depending on what the artist come up with that fits the game world. Cool. Oh, man. Imagination is going wild right now. This is great. Uh, how do you know what players want? I mean, you yourself are a gamer. So are you drawing most of your uh, direction from the game from what you want, you and the rest of the development team? Or do you actually go to forums and you kind of stalk the forums and see what people are saying? And that's where you get your research. Well, we definitely do read a lot of gaming forums, especially other action RPGs, and we can see the sentiment of the players, and often that sentiment is overstated. I mean, we've noticed that players really like to be angry about things on the internet, you know, even if it's not <laughs> something that really bothers them, they, they want to be angry vocally. And um, we're gamers ourselves, so we generally just go with what we think is good. But if we see that a large pe- amount of people on the internet have some other opinion, we'll look into why. I mean, if they, if they like a certain system from another game, we'll go and install that game and see why it's fun for them. Oftentimes we don't understand, and sometimes we learn something. Mm-hmm. Great. 
Definitely, definitely. Uh, you pretty much answered a question uh, before, but just one more time. Uh, so when this game launches, you have a lot of content that's going to be coming on the way. Do you guys kind of have a time frame for that, like how quickly you want to release stuff? I know that a lot of developers are really getting into trouble because they, they end up releasing the game, and then the, D- the DLC comes so late that it's almost meaningless at that point. People have had a tendency to move on. So do you guys have like a window that you're expecting to get content out to players? There are a few different levels of content here. I mean, you can look at the, the largest level, uh, the major expansion acts, and they take a long time to make. And sure, we're hoping sure. to design the game to be fun enough out of the gate so the players don't get bored before the first additional act is ready. So, you know, we, we're basically going to not... It's not like we release the game and then do nothing until the next act is sure. available. We'll still be patching it. I mean, we can we can patch every two days pretty much if we need to to get balance stuff right. And we like running competitions for the players. I mean, there's one tomorrow, for example, where it's a race through the game in hardcore mode with a whole bunch of prizes for full clearing various areas and that kind of thing. So we're trying to create stuff for the players to do that doesn't take us very much time so that while the team is busy working on the next massive expansion that adds a ton of stuff to do, we can have the players engaged with the ongoing updates to the game itself. So I'd say half the content gets introduced during that six months while the expansion is being prepared, and then the other half is dropped in as the expansion is ready. Cool, cool. Bring us home, Bob. All right. Uh, Grind Gear Games is a relatively new company. Yeah, five years, but this is your first big project. Uh, do you have plans for future projects, or is all your energy being spent on Path of Exile right now? We've literally only thought about Path of Exile. I mean, once this game is released, that's only the first step. You know, that's the, okay, we've got the game done now for the actual ongoing support and making it awesome. And we understand that because we're a small company with a relatively small budget, our game is going to be smaller than some of our competitors on the very first day of release. But our intention is that after five years, it's bigger than all of the competitors. And by then, we hope to be just the biggest and best action RPG out there. And we're going to just treat it as such. I mean, I, I personally have no plans to start any other gaming projects until Path of Exile is very, very successful. Cool. Great. Cool. Uh, Chris, I like to ask people when they come onto the show, uh, just because our, our listeners, and I know I'm always interested to hear what uh, developers are playing, where they're drawing inspiration from, and we've already tapped on that a little bit. But uh, what games are you playing right now? What games are you really looking forward to? Just to give us you know, some insight into what a developer is thinking. At the moment, I'm actually playing a lot of Path of Exile, and I mean that I, <laughs> it's actually quite—it's actually a lot of fun now. I mean, for the answer a year ago would be, you know, I'm playing some Minecraft and, you know, looking forward to trying out the Diablo 3 beta when it's available and so on. But I've played the Diablo 3 beta now, and, you know, I've seen that. I've played enough Minecraft last year. Path of Exile, for me, is a good game to play for a couple of reasons. For starters, it's the game that I wanted to play, so I made it. And secondly, it's very... It's very easy to justify playing it when it also doubles as work. I mean, it lets me chat to the community. It lets me see how the game actually plays from a player's point of view. And I always learn something that needs to be changed every time I do play it. But thankfully, it's at a stage now where, you know, we've got a beta realm that's relatively fresh. And I can play my character and accumulate items and just basically enjoy it for a game that it is. Um, It's probably not the answer you wanted to hear because you wanted to hear what other games I'm looking but forward to. you were being honest. You were being honest, but... <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of special to me because, like, we made this project because we wanted there to be a game like this, and now it's finally in the state where it's fun to play for what it is without me having to overlook things that aren't done yet. Mm-hmm. So that's basically where my time is going. And I've pledged that I'll spend a couple of days playing some Skyrim over Christmas because everyone else in the office is obsessed with it, and it looks quite good. <laughs> 
I like uh, that you kind of adhere to that writer's mantra where uh, if you write something and you're bored by it, chances are everyone else can be bored by it. So the fact that you can play your game so much and you still find it entertaining probably means other people are going to like it too. And I know I personally did. I can't wait for the finished project. Thanks very much. Yeah, yeah. Now, now I'm sitting here going, I have to steal Bob's beta. Key. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm really pissed off because I, I said on the website like a while back, I was like, are we going to get beta keys for this? I'm kind of interested. Bob's the one who gets one. I'm just like, God, now I got to kill Bob and take the beta key. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I can get you some keys. That, hey, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, yeah, that would be very nice. <laughs> but no, I'm really interested in playing it. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, if you want to talk closer to the game's release, you definitely know where to hit us up. And, you know, thanks again for coming on and talking about your game. Not a problem. I had a great time. Thank you very much, guys. All right. Thank you very much, sir. 